All right, the, the reading for today is 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve, as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are coming, are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds, together with them to meet the Lord in the air, so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Ah, important, important passage, and definitely one that has uh, shaped the context of modern American Christianity uh, in a number of ways that as we get thinking and talking about them, I think will become clear. The big picture here is that in this uh, passage, we have the return of what we have called in the past the strikeover. As you might recall from previous sermons about Revelation and a bunch of other texts, uh, one thing that early Christian folk did quite well is they would borrow the forms and practices of, uh, you know, the powers that they were worried about, especially imperial powers. They would take them and they would kind of make them their own. They would, in essence, the reason why we call it the strike over is like with the revelation and the coin. And if you remember the reference back to uh, the treatment of coins in, uh, in Maccabees, that uh, it, was, it is the kind of the essence of the Christian understanding of the world that we take something which is not ours and we put our own unique stamp on it and demonstrate how all along that form had anticipated, pointed towards, or even uh, uh, oriented us towards uh, the perfection of our human practices in the person of Christ. We see this over and over and over in the early church where there is constantly talk about the authority of other powers, other powers that you know are kind of doing things that are difficult for the church, and the strategy is not to directly confront the authority of those powers as much as it is to say, for example, in the case of Rome, you know, no matter how much power Rome has, there is only one true power in the universe, one power which is legitimate and just and right, and that power, of course, is Christ. So this, this strategy of the strikeover, this idea that early Christians would borrow uh, Roman forms especially and use them, would essentially throw those images back in the face of the Romans for a you know, encouragement of the audience of Christians who understood the joke, who were in on the joke, is an important uh, kind of thing in reading uh, the uh, letters and uh, uh, the documents that emerge out of the early church. Now, the difficulty is that it is a tough thing for us to read and understand and connect with absent that historical context. So here's the kind of bottom line up front. If we take something in the gospel that we believe is God-inspired, and even more, that God inspires something with a specific intention, okay, so in this instance, that God's kingdom is superior to all other claims to power, we might miss what God is trying to tell us if we don't think carefully enough about the context. This is the, this is the weird place that especially folks at resurrection find themselves in, but that I think thinking Christians have to find themselves in, that 
for every silly debate that we've heard about whether or not the Bible is literally true, people treat the two sides of the equation as if on one side the Bible is essentially a history and scientific textbook that perfectly matches with the realities external to it, and on the other side it's just a bunch of fairy tales, that can only, and it can only be one or the other. The problem is, and the thing we have to think about is, in, in that false dichotomy is this, what do we mean when we say that the Bible is literally true, that it is also, in fact, God-inspired? And my sense is what it should mean for us is that in our community, we don't criticize the doctrine of literalism because we think the Bible is a bunch of fairy tales. We are critics of literalism because we desperately want to know what God was trying to tell us. That's why we try to understand the context. We try to understand the context of these stories, not because we think the Bible is not valuable, but because we think that people who don't pay attention to what God was really trying to tell us have, in the name of a specific doctrine of Scripture, ignored what it is that God is trying to say to God's people. So we focus on the history and the context, not because we want to say something else, but because we want to understand what it is that God is trying to speak to God's church. All right, so to kind of get at this, I'm going to tell three quick stories. Okay, story one. The modern version of evangelical fundamentalism, I consider myself uh, to be an evangelical, but not necessarily a fundamentalist, came about because two oil magnates, these guys named the Stewart brothers, were worried about a decline in faith in the 1900s. So what they did is they took a bunch of their oil money and they created this volume like a desk set for preachers, and it was actually called, funnily enough, where the name fundamentalism came from, The Fundamentals. So they uh, had put out this kind of desk volume for pastors who they uh, wanted to help kind of preach the word in the, in the way that they understood it. They actually uh, they engaged the services of a guy that you might have heard of named C.I. Schofield uh, uh, to help write chapters for them. And anyway, the only reason I tell the, the story is that what emerged out of this set of, uh, of, of, of kind of documents and this way of thinking about biblical interpretation was quite literally, in a historical perspective, a vision of Christianity which had never before been seen in the history of the church. Okay, so it was like, it was essentially fairly uh, new intervention. And a lot of it, you know, this kind of literalist, dispensationalist, premillennialist way of thinking about scripture hinged on an interpretation of what happened here in Thessalonians. So it was hugely significant in determining the shape of American Christianity. And, you know, if you talk to your more, uh, more fundamentalist-leaning uh, brothers and sisters who we love and embrace and hope that they come to, you know, uh, to, 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 to conversation with us, but if you talk to them about it, uh, it th th this is literally the document or set of documents that laid the seeds for what would become the culture war. Because it said... Uh, the end of the whole story is that the people who are good are going to be snapped up in the air and the people who are not good are going to uh, stay on earth and they're going to have some difficult times and basically the whole theology that informs the left behind vision of Christianity was formed by this one historical moment backed by these two oil brothers. Story, that's story one. Okay, story two. Imagine some apocalyptic event happens and most of our civilizations wiped out. And imagine that somehow, thousands of years in the future, uh, people are able to recover some of the documents 
for our civilization, not all of them, but funnily enough, uh, sometime far in the future, they're able to get access to the sermon archives at Res Church. And uh, the people listen to them, and because they don't have access to other documents, they notice how many times Trey and I, over the last couple of years, have made a series of, uh, of kind of jokes about either making uh, Christianity great again or making Israel great again in the context of uh, talking about the Pharisees. And let's just say they didn't have enough knowledge to know that when Trey and I say that, that it entails just a note of irony. It's both a critique of a certain nationalist understanding of what it means to uh, fight for the kingdom and simultaneously an affirmation of uh, some of the goals that are behind it. So imagine they didn't have the whole context that would allow them to understand that uh, use of irony. And so the resurrection comes and we're all standing together and someone comes up to Trey and says, gosh, you know, uh, I don't know if you know it, but thousands of years down the line, uh, your uh, work on making Christianity great again totally influenced how we thought about our theology. Thank you, Trey. You're a hero, and it's great to meet you. Now, weirdly enough, one of the difficulties that would be present here and one of the difficulties in doing real difficult interpretation is that if you don't understand the context, it's very difficult to understand things that are fairly subtle, like irony. It's very difficult to understand how ideas and arguments are situated. Story three. Soren Kierkegaard loves this anecdote about hypothetical medicine for constipation. So he tells the story about a doctor who would prescribe medicine to you. And yeah, right. And uh, the thing that the doctor knows that you don't is that uh, if you take the full dose of this medicine, it's going to fix your problem. But the weird thing about this medicine is if you take a half dose of it, it's actually going to make you way more stopped up. So let's pretend the doctor knows this, but you don't know this, and you're at home, and you have one bottle of it, and all of a sudden, two people in the house have a problem. They need the medicine for constipation. Now, we might think, you know what, half the bottle is better than anything. So let's distribute that half bottle. But what we wouldn't know is that in distributing that half bottle to two people in the house, we might make things much worse. Now, Kierkegaard uses this story to talk about what's wrong with half Christianity. He says that oftentimes half Christianity and specifically half understandings of the scripture can end up making us do things that are exactly opposite their intention. All right, so oil guys who created fundamentalism, post-apocalyptic misfirings of irony, and a half dose of the right medicine, what do all of these three stories have in common? These three stories describe the real dangers of not seeing this fourth chapter of Thessalonians for what it really is. If we are not careful, we might build an entire theology on a fragment of scripture that we don't understand, and even that uh, is ignorant of the historical context that it was spoken in, and perhaps of the historical context of the faith in general. And were we To do that, we might, uh, despite our best efforts, not only misunderstand this specific moment of Scripture, but it might cause us, in some ways, to misunderstand the entirety of the faith. It might cause us to articulate a gospel that claims that this 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 narrative, this uh, this this action in the person and presence of Jesus Christ, which is about helping the oppressed, it's about lifting up the downtrodden, it's about identifying with the loser, well, we might take that gospel and turn it into exactly its opposite. A triumphalist screed for the winners of the world. It might cause us to take a doctrine that holds at its very core 
that Christ is the only legitimate authority and to do exactly the opposite, to create an eschatological escape hatch that condemns the unbeliever to death and excuses the believer from doing the things that the kingdom asks them to do, which is quite clearly to go and to make the world new again in the name of Jesus Christ. Caught up in the air is a perfect example of how when we engage scripture in a half-hearted, non-contextual way, it can do exactly the opposite. Our popular understanding of it is defined by this path laid out by the Stuart brothers, and it represents a fundamental misunderstanding of an irony that Paul's employing that is every bit as problematic as, say, uh, in my example, saying, uh, make Israel or the faith great again, and it's every bit as dangerous as a half dose of that medicine. Paul is talking to an audience of folks who are undergoing intense impression, and he's saying to them, have faith, because all the crappy stuff that Rome does and all the things that Rome makes you bow to cannot and will not last. Rome is not the real power in the world. Jesus is, and every single element of Roman lore regarding the emperor will be fulfilled, if not to the letter, at least in the spirit, in the coming of Jesus. Being caught up in the air, funnily enough, for the folks who piously recite it, is a Roman imperial slogan. It's something the Romans consistently attributed to Caesar. And because we don't understand the historical context, and I don't just mean of Thessalonians, but of the faith, funnily enough, we've taken a slogan that represents everything that we were supposed to hate, and we've cited it as the literal word of God, and in doing so, it has become impossible for us to separate Christianity not only from Rome, but from every crappy, self-justifying discourse of imperial power. It's the perfect example of the half measure that reaffirms the thing that we're supposed to be opposed to. Sound like an audacious claim? It may be, but work with me for a second. So, as you remember, in the case of a strikeover, the basic stakes are, uh, author, typically Paul is writing uh, in such a way so as to engage the, uh, an imperial power, in this instance Rome, in a way that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek because Paul wants to both reaffirm that there's not a necessary antagonism between the faith at the level of, you know, we're someone else to listen to or hear the letter, but simultaneously to create a vision of engaging with Rome that takes these Roman forms, strikes them over, makes them Christian, and uses it to impress people and to encourage people in fighting against the imperial power in the name of saying that Jesus is the real power. And this is a project that would have been totally crucial for the people at Thessalonica. I mean, we know there is an imperial cult temple there. It was recently unearthed, and uh, uh, you kind of had to know it was coming, but it was one of the earliest cities in the Roman Empire to issue a coin that uh, honored Caesar as, as God. So, you know, there was incredible pressure for the people in Thessalonica to uh, curry favor with Rome by getting the uh, folks in the city to participate in the festivals, getting the folks in the city to swear a loyalty oath to the emperor. By the way, that loyalty oath was no, was no joke. It would have been something like this. There would have been an expectation that people swear this. If I swear falsely, may Jupiter Optimus Maximus and the deified Caesar Augustus and all the other immortal gods punish me. So, you know, they would have had to swear this oath. They would have had to go to these festivals. They would have had to uh, done all kinds of things. Like if you were a merchant... Um, you would have had to have uh, had a, a shrine up or a painting up that demonstrated that you paid fidelity to the imperial cult. And gosh, if you were a person who was potentially a leader, not only would you have to swear that oath, but you know, you'd kind of have to be uh, involved in 
fairly consistently saying that you cared about the imperial uh, occult and that it was important to you and that you wanted to reaffirm and honor its values. And all those things were necessary for anybody in Thessalonica because basically the point of the city was they wanted to demonstrate to the central power in Rome just how gung-ho they were about the imperial cult. So there would have been massive social pressure for all the folks in this new uh, and emergent church to basically participate in all this stuff that was associated with the imperial cult. In other words, we're not just talking about persecution here, which we are. There were people who were killed, we'll talk about in a moment. But we're also talking about a context where people were trying to figure out how to be true to their faith in, uh, in the face of intense social pressure for people to line up behind the imperial cult. In other words, the Thessalonian people were essentially the subject of a Roman imperial gospel. And weirdly enough, it has all the elements that we see in the Christian gospel. It has its own eschatology. It has its own kind of statement of what the end of history is. And in fact, the Romans were totally obsessed with this idea that because they had conquered the world, they were essentially living in the end times. The Romans would say over and over and over that because they had ruled, uh, because they were uh, in control of the globe, or at least what folks know, that a new age of peace and security was here. And just if you start to see how the, the kind of terminology that the Romans associated it with it, it's, you know, it's crazy. They say that it is the, that Caesar represents the hope of salvation. They say that it represents the uh, idea of true peace, that it is in fact the end of history, that there's the establishment of a kingdom which will ultimately end, uh, end, end time. The Romans were obsessed with this cult that said that Caesar Augustus and, in fact, the lifestyle values and, 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 and principles that informed Rome uh, ought to be translated into a religion, and that religion ought to be translated into the purpose of making people aligned with and advancing the uh, idea of Roman ideology. And it's in this context where there's this massive pressure for people to be good Romans that Christianity emerges. And it emerges as this idea that is uh, uh, affiliated with uh, the, a critique of the hatred and violence and all the terrible things about the, Roman instead, or the Romans and instead about uh, pointing towards a person in the person of Jesus Christ who is and who will be the completion of history on terms that fix the universe instead of breaking it. If you want a great example of this in, in the context of letters to the early church, take Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which, you know, as we've talked about before, most people think it's, it's potentially one of the earliest things that was written down uh, in the Christian church. It is easily the earliest hymn that we have in the Christian church. And, you know, uh, it essentially gets cited in the context of Philippians. And it's, the, it's, it's a great indicator of what the music and, 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 and theology and investments of the time were. And, you know, so let's look at it. We know he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, so he emptied himself, taking on the form of a man. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. It's, you know, it's, not, it's a lot better than Shine, Jesus, Shine, for example. What we have in this hymn is a high Christological defense of the nature of God that is in part powerful because it's exactly the opposite of Caesar. Caesar is a man who wants to raise himself to the level of being divine. Jesus is a God who does not see that equality with God as something to be held on to, and so he humbles himself 
and becomes a man. The thing is, it's not just high Christology that we have to think about Jesus as being emptied and taking on human form, although it is high Christology. It's also that the high Christology here has a very specific angle for the people that it was talking to. And the angle was this illegitimate corrupt power, Rome, is not a illegitimate and corrupt power that can last forever because Jesus is going to come and declare Jesus' rightful sovereignty and authority over the whole universe. And the beautiful thing is, as many times as people try and say, oh, are you talking about the context or are you talking about the theology, is that it's both. Because confirming that Jesus is God, unlike Caesar, is a way of saying Jesus is really God, not just in the scheme of eternity, but Jesus is God for the Thessalonican community in the context of Roman oppression. And Jesus is God in the exact opposite way that Caesar claims to be God. And because Jesus is God there in that context, we can know that Jesus is God here in this context, because Jesus the Christ is not just an abstract idea or ideal towards which we strive. Jesus the Christ is a real uh, real God, real principle of the universe, and more importantly, is a real person who, in this instance, has a fairly blistering critique of what is unjust and sinful about our world, and has a fairly blistering critique of folks that are willing to water down their commitments for the sake of making well with the powers that be. That's the point of the Christological hymn in Philippians. And here's the thing. This is the point of this passage in Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. So if we look at 15 through 17 closely, we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command and the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, so we will be with the Lord forever. Okay, so the imagery here is very complex. And, uh, you know, as I imagine Dr. Benfield would uh, attest, there is lots of Jewish apocalyptic imagery built into this. And we, you know, so we can all see that. There's clouds there's an archangel, uh, and there's a vision of the living and the dead together once again. Those things are all kind of generally in the ambit of Jewish eschatology. So far, so good. And we shouldn't be surprised that Paul would use this kind of imagery, but there's a kind of weird twist here, which is that the people of Thessalonica were not, you know, typically Jewish. They were largely Gentile. So, you know, that referencing kind of Jewish stories about the end times would not have been effective for them. And if there's one thing that Paul is, it's that Paul is deadly effective in thinking about what arguments can best meet with and present the gospel for his audience. So there might be a different tradition in place here. And if we look at it closely from the perspective of how the Romans would have talked about Caesar, all of a sudden, all this stuff starts to really pop. So for example, the title Lord in verse 15 is a Roman title with Greek roots. The word is uh, kurios in Greek. It's one of the royal titles of Caesar. It's an honorific that would have been only applied to the leader of the imperial cult. The cry of command that's mentioned here is also a Roman tradition. When an emperor would enter a city, the Romans would sound this cry. They'd play a trumpet. They would come out to greet whoever the official that was coming and what scholars call 
a civic greeting. And in fact, the combination of these terms, so the kurios, the Lord, and the, uh, the coming of the, of the Lord, the parousia kurios, the coming of the Lord here, is a term that had a very specific Roman meaning. So the term uh, that we translate in Greek as, uh, as parousia was uh, translated in Latin as adventus. It's the same way, place we get our term advent from. But for the Romans, this kind of coming of the Lord, what it meant very, very specifically was a, a, a kind of meeting between someone in the imperial cult and uh, the, the subjects of a nation that was conquered. So the coming of the Lord is a Roman term for a great military victor going into a specific context, winning a military battle, and then installing Roman rule. And Paul is using that exact same term here to mention uh, the possibility that when Christ returns, uh, there is this kind of civic greeting where Christ is essentially conquering uh, what's go you know the earth and and the powers that be on the earth and people are coming out to meet Christ and to treat him as uh, that as you would a Roman lord and as if you keep reading it it becomes more and more apparent that what Paul is doing here is essentially referring to this practice so for example the dead in Christ this is a really strange title it's not something that's used very consistently in the rest of the New Testament but you know most uh, there's a, a good bit of scholars who are thinking along this lines of these lines of saying that it's a civic greeting that say that the dead in Christ is a specific reference to people who were killed for not swearing the loyalty oath. That what made you dead in Christ uh, was not just that you died believing in Jesus, but that that was a term people would have used in the context of Thessalonica to talk about uh, folks who were put to death because they would not swear the Roman loyalty oath. And in fact, you know, we continue to 417, meet the Lord in the air. Man, that that's a Hugely fascinating term. The term in, uh, in Greek is uh, apentesis, and it means uh, the, the kind of meeting that would be uh, like this civic welcome that we were talking about for Roman dignitaries. So, for example, Cicero commemorates Julius Caesar's visit to a newly conquered capital by heralding this meeting, this apentesis, and the honors that were being given to him. And in fact, he, uh, he declares that the coming of Caesar is uh, what he would call good news and like having all the full resonance with the concept of the gospel. But the like really crazy part about this whole thing, especially as we've read the rapture, is that there was this story about Caesar Augustus and the imperial cult that says that when Augustus passed from this world, he was caught up or snatched up into the air by a star and that when the end of time were fully consummated, that Augustus would return uh, from his sojourn on earth and to the sky, is how the sky Millennius puts it, and that he would meet his followers in the air. Now, I, I think it gives it a much different vision of what is going on in, uh, in, in, this, in this part of Thessalonians to say that is Paul here repeating a bunch of stuff about the Roman story about Caesar Augustus to make a claim that Christianity and in fact belief in Christ is, uh, is, is, is the thing that not only in the end represents a critique of and a, an argument against the Roman Empire, but instead represents the possibility of real peace, real authority of a real king. In other words, is Paul only using an ironic strike through here? Maybe. <coughs> 
Irony doesn't mean that something is wrong. It simply means that when you say something in one way, you also mean something else. <coughs> when Paul says that Jesus will come again, that he will defeat death, he will create a new and true kingdom, I take those things to be uh, straightforward proclamations of the truth of the gospel. When Paul describes that in one place, and by the way, a description that's not replicated anywhere else in the scripture, in the context of uh, talking to a specific community that has a specific story about an engagement with the Roman imperial cult, is there irony in saying there's a civic greeting and being caught up into the sky? Potentially. And the thing is, we can't really engage the meaning of that little part of Thessalonians, and obviously we have to do it prayerfully and do it uh, with, with, uh, with study, but the real difficulty here is that we have to see that it is at least in part a reference to an ironic strike-through that is about a critique of the Roman Empire and in fact positioning Christ as the one who will ultimately fulfill the mandate of every authority, fulfill the mandate of every good. That's the thing, is that if we engage these elements of Scripture in recognizing that Paul is doing a little bit of a critique of the Roman Empire, it doesn't negate the idea that Christ is, uh, uh, is the principle of, of our salvation, that Christ is the person who saves us, that Christ is aimed at and directed towards making the world right again, that Jesus comes in order to establish a relationship that we will one day be uh, with and in the full presence of Jesus Christ at the resurrection and of those who have gone before us. It doesn't mean that any of those things are not true. It simply means that when we try and do elaborate theological claims that help us understand what it means to be caught up in the air, that the first place that we ought to start with is the potential that maybe Paul is doing something that is for those people in that context. And were we to take it literally and not understand the context that it refers to, we might have a drastically wrong interpretation of what it is that God is trying to say to us. Because what we know, what we know with, with certainty is that Jesus Christ has come in order to uh, tear down everything that is about the orders of sin and death and power and destruction, that is about reducing people's, uh, uh, not seeing people as made in the image of God, that is about not seeing people as, as, as fully uh, children of Christ in, in, in their essence, that is about the values of war and desperation and of, of, of privilege and inequity. Like we know that Jesus is not only coming to overturn those things, but that those things aggrieve Jesus. There's no irony there. But what we don't entirely know is whether or not Paul's description here functions in a way that it declares a literal truth or if it is an ironic presentation of things that we believe are in the essence of and the direction of and in fact will be fulfilled by something that is greater than we could possibly imagine or possibly understand. What we do know is that the fundamental truth of Jesus' claim is to destroy the orders of sin and death and despair and to raise us again and that he asks us to die to do the same. There's no irony there. Amen. Talk? Good. <laughs> I'm the you know, like no. Okay. Anybody? I'm checking what daddy got. <laughs> That's what I'm
Oh, you're, you're, you're checking me? Okay, that's it. Well, you should. You should check me. <laughs> but there's some consistencies in... The trumpet is consistent. Oh, well, the trumpet is consistent. Yeah, that's right. But is there any other consistencies? Of- in this account and other accounts yeah. of, Christ- of end times? Of Jesus and the clouds are consistent. Yeah, trumpets, and I think... clouds. Yeah. Any others? Um, no, I mean, the only one, the, the, so whether or not there's this like civic greeting is the first thing that people focus on. So that, and what they take the civic greeting to be, not only does the sovereign come to us, but we come to the sovereign and we meet somewhere in the air. Uh, that is to the best of my knowledge. And honestly, you know, even just think back to your old school, um, you know, Baptist education, when people talk about the concept of the rapture, there's very few, everyone will say there are very few places where there's real proof for it. We have glimpses of it, and twinkling of an eye is one, and, and caught up in the air is one, but that is somewhat idiosyncratic in the rest of, of Scripture. There's not, uh, there's not like anywhere that has that same kind of direct clarity with it that has the same concept of civic greeting. The trumpet is consistent across, you know, and I think the elements that you mentioned are not just Roman, but Jewish. And, to, you know, and by the way, like, to say those things is not to say that there won't be a trumpet or whatever. It's just that people are borrowing concepts that help them understand that a great sovereign is coming back and we have some obligation to it, et cetera, et cetera. Dan. When we were studying Middleton's book, he, he talked about the but he also has the fact that the 